Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 15 in our series for 2022. And today's date is Friday, May the 13th. First, I'll be talking to Gustavo Caroga, the Vice President and GM of Moviguity for APAC. Mobiquity partners with the world's leading brands and banks to design and deliver compelling digital products and services. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about interest rate rises. But now let's talk to Gustavo Caroga. Well, Gus, uh, tell us about the work that Mobiquity does. So, look, we, we consult, build and integrate digital product experiences. So, so let me put that in an example because that's the best way to get this. So say you want to get a 10K, a 10K loan for a car. The minute, the minute you decide you want to engage with that brand for the purpose of buying their product or service, your purchase journey becomes this, this sequence of like micro-digital touch points that can destroy your perception of that brand, say Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, or what have you. So for example, when you go to apply, could I easily find the loan product that was for me as I start to apply? How much information are they asking? How simple is it to validate my identity? Did I get the right product? Was it at the right price? Where's the documentation? All of these little things define that that purchase journey. So in terms of the work that we do, we, we research, design, and solve for these micro-challenges, as I described them, and we build them into do, uh, digital product experiences, and then we integrate them into the technology and business process of the organisation we're working for. So yeah. it becomes like a, a, a link or a icon in the bank's website. Yeah, and I, I like to think about it more as it becomes a natural flow of the customer journey within the bank's or the brand's overall customer experience. So, for example, right, we, we've, we've quite often had the opportunity to build banks from scratch, like Eli Bank and, in the Middle East, but sometimes banks will come to us and say, look, we just want to fix this KYC piece because our onboarding experience is not great. So how do we go and build that onboarding experience? So it just feels like it's a natural part of that overall bank experience, not, okay, and I'm going to go over here to do my identity check. That's not what we do. So it can never be about add-on. It has to be about a natural flow 
of the overall experience that the threat that reflects that brand's identity or that bank's identity as well. Right. Okay. And all of this is about engaging the customer. Correct. It's it's always about engaging customers, and I think that's certainly in terms of what's what's the work we do. It's really about helping banks connect and understand the experiences that their customer wants so that they are engaged and so they don't go to the next best experience they had somewhere else. Now, uh, Mubiquity is targeting mutuals and challenger banks and neobanks in the Asia-Pacific. Is that right and why? Yeah, that, that, is, that is correct. So, look, first of all, the real opportunity in, in this segment is to take advantage of our extensive experience in terms of working with banks of all sizes, you know, Standard Bank, Citibank, Bank of Sydney locally, ME Bank, and more. So we we are we're dividing up that market into tactical and strategic segments because we see a lot of opportunities here. From a tactical level, we tend to focus more on solutions to current problems that that these banks have, such as how do I turn pay to um, new industry initiative into something that helps my merchant clients win more customers? Or how do I speed up the approval of the right personal loan for my retail customers? So we do this by partnering with best of breed technology vendors like Q2, Hay, Jumio, Strand, etc. So that's kind of how we target at the tactical level. At the strategic level, the ask from this segment is more, how do I run a cost-effective digital transformation program, right, to, to stay abreast of, of uh, competing demands? So for this type, of, this type of challenge, we provide more of a digital banking, STECO, or advisory board services. You know, and we're doing that for a number of organisations that are looking to stand up new propositions, like a brand new Islamic bank, for instance, here in Australia, like Hijaz Bank, uh, Hijaz Financial Services is looking to do. But we also strategically, for these organisations, build new digital channels like, hey, can you build a mobile app because we don't have a mobile app to engage with our customers? Or can you build a full digital bank from the ideation to the full go-to-market? So for this, we're constantly evaluating what we see the best-of-breed options are, things like Backbase, Thought Machines, Beamit and Hass, etc. What's interesting here is that banking services are now spread across different industries, uh, like, uh, say, retailers and airlines, yeah. uh, sporting clubs, yeah. associations. You can actually provide them with that service. So a retailer can come to you and say, hey, we want to set up a buy now, pay later. Program. Yeah. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, we want to provide or a sports club can say, or, you know, group, we want to provide sports scholarships for our members or something like that. Yeah. And, and they're like banking services. Yes. And yeah. so you can provide that as well. Yes, you're absolutely spot on. Look, I think this is probably the most exciting area that we work on in this industry. It's about bringing this opportunity to extend the utility that these trusted brands have with their customers by bringing in financial services, which they couldn't do before. Now, the reason is like banks or banking is, is, is really a very loosely distributed or very distributed and loosely defined industry. So all of these airlines can now, or sorry, all of these industries, airlines, sporting associations, they've got something that, that every other bank 
covets and that's trust of their customers, a real brand and a real brand affinity. So as you said, you know, as a Penrith Panthers member, I might take out a car loan with them before I go to a bank because I know that and some insurance because I know that I trust them, that they're going to give me the best deal because I love my my club and any profits are going to go back to make my, my club even better. So why wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't I take out a Qantas holiday and pay it through Qantas in 12 easy direct, instantly created direct debit payments using this pay to functionality and so on and so forth. So absolutely, I think this is the most exciting area of innovation of financial services across the whole industry. And it's not just just traditional banks. You could say that uh, something like flights overseas, I mean, flights overseas are very expensive, but if, say, Qantas offered a buy now, pay later scheme, yeah. it would take to it quite well. Yes, absolutely. And like buy now, pay later is just the, the tip of the iceberg. It, it could just be deferred payments where they directly come out of my bank account and I can swap around which accounts they come out of depending on my pay cycles, depending on my, I might change employment and all that can happen quite instantly. So you make this experience seamless. So why go to a bank and have to deal with that third party when I can just do it with the organisation that's actually taking care of what I want, which is to go overseas and have a great time. So that, I think that's where this trust and, and brand affinity is going to really transform the industry. So, I mean, the banking industry obviously has a number of challenges, uh, particularly with engagement. How you, how's Mobiquity dealing with that? So, look, to, to answer this, let me focus on, on three areas of challenge that I see. You mentioned engagement, but I, I see three big areas. First of all, it's fintech competition, the evolving digital customer and what they want, and the lack of trust. Now, we help banks address this in two ways. First, we, uh, for banks, we answer one simple question that they always have, and there's, well, how do I innovate digital products at the speed of customer? Now, fintechs, they're not tethered by legacy tech, complex process, and complex hierarchy. We provide that fintech agility in an enterprise context to the banks, and we do this through our own industrialized digital product engineering approach, which we call the digital traction model. But as we're also digital specialists, we have teams of consultants um, that talk to customer, to their end customers, and translate their needs into what we call the most viable, desirable, and feasible digital experiences. So that addresses the first two challenges, right? Which is around fintech competition and the evolving digital customer need. On the, on the challenge of trust, I think this is a real good one, uh, on the challenge of trust, we act as broke partnership brokers or we sponsor marriages between organisations. I'll explain what I mean. So, so for a bank, why not empower and enable those organisations that have the trust of captive audiences, so the Penrith Panthers, the Qantases of the world, and therefore tackle this challenge of trust as more of one of distribution into those target segments and integration with the organizations that own those target sets. So we, what we do in that sense is we orchestrate those, uh, we broker those marriages and we orchestrate those business integrations from a technology and experience perspective. Let me, let me give you a real quick example because I think this crystallizes the point. So there's a really interesting uh, FinTech out there called Mist, which hopefully we'll hear more about. Mist have a really good relationship with an understanding of immigrants of new of new migrants and students into this country so they know that segment 
and they are trusted into that segment. So rather than try and, as a bank, go and get that business, why not just go to MIST, enable them to provide the financial services, and then come to us to make sure it happens in a, it happens seamlessly. Seems like a win-win to me. But that will be fascinating to watch, Gus. Absolutely intriguing. You're going to reshape the banking industry completely, and it's going to be fascinating to watch. And uh, welcome to Australia. Thank you very much. Looking forward to uh, making an impact. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver. Well, Shane, the RBA has raised interest rates 25 basis points to 0.35. We're looking at a series of interest rate rises over the next period of time, maybe two years. What's your view about that? Well, yes, uh, the Reserve Bank has started hiking rates since the first hike since November 2010, so a long way between interest rate increases, and it's something that obviously is a big change for Australia. But we look for further hikes. Uh, the Reserve Bank has basically said as much that there will be more hikes to come to keep inflation or get inflation back down. We see the cash rate rising to probably around 2% by year end and maybe 2.5% by middle of next year. So quite a bit more upside to go. But of course, in a historical context, those levels of interest rates will still be relatively low and I think are consistent with the fact that we now have much more household debt than we did in the past. How long do you think this period will go for? 2023, maybe 2024? Look, to be honest with you, I think we're probably looking at 12 months of hikes. There will come a time, maybe starting this later this year or as we go through next year, where some of the inflation pressures might start to come off. And I say that because... I mean, there's no doubt there's an element of demand driving inflation. You've just got to look at yesterday's retail sales numbers, which were up more than 9% for the last year. So there's an element of demand in there, but there's also an element of supply. And that relates to the, the setbacks in production globally that have occurred as a result of the pandemic, which has stopped people getting to work. We've still got lockdowns going on in China. We've got the war in Ukraine floods. Some of those factors, maybe not the war in Ukraine, unfortunately, but some of those factors will start to abate. And therefore, we should see an improvement in supply conditions, which should put some downwards pressure on inflation through the second half of this year globally. And that may be felt in Australia as we go through next year, which I think will take some pressure off the Reserve Bank. So I, I don't think we're necessarily going to see years of rate hikes, but we probably at least do have a, another year of rate hikes ahead of us. Well, the Reserve Bank has actually said uh, they're expecting a further increase in the inflation rate as the effects of uh, global de developments wash through the year ended figures. That's right. They're seeing a pick up to 6% on a headline year-on-year -year basis, and also they're seeing the underlying measure push up to 4.75%. But I think to some degree that's factoring in the fact you know, we saw a 2.1% rise in the September quarter alone. So even if you allow for that and, and then some slowing in the quarterly pace, you, you still get to 6.1% or 6% by the end of the year. So I think that's what they're assuming there, that yes, that the year-on-year year or the 12-month ended number will continue to rise, but the quarterly pace, from what I can see, they do seem to be assuming some slowing uh, from the very high quarterly pace we saw in the March quarter. So interest rates would get up to about, you're saying, 2.5% till inflation gets back to within the 2 to 3% target band? That's right. It's all about getting inflation back to the target band. For a long time there, the Reserve Bank was underperforming on inflation. Inflation was below its target. And, of course, it uh, adjusted its policy 
in response to that, obviously through the pandemic and even more recently, we're, we're sounding very dovish, you know, that interest rates wouldn't go up to 2024. But the Reserve Bank has now realised that that pushed things a bit too far. They got a bit too dovish. They got a bit too carried away. And, of course, they've changed their tune. I mean, many other economists, including ourselves, have realised that yeah, they, they were getting a bit too carried away, which they have. But the Reserve Bank has done a huge about-face and they are now gone from concerns that inflation will be too low to concerns that inflation will be too high. So they're, they're now stressing the need to get inflation back to target, that they will do whatever is necessary to do that, that they don't want to see inflation psychology or inflation expectations get out of control like they did, say, in the 1970s. So it's all about getting inflation back to target. And if you we see some pickup in supply conditions globally as the pandemic hopefully fades into history, and if we see some slowing in demand in the economy locally in response to higher interest rates, which I think we will, then consequently that should help bring inflation back to target. But trying to put an end, a precise endpoint on the absolute high for interest rates that they will get to is always very difficult. There's always a bit of a, de- a guessing game going on. Uh, if things slow down faster than Reserve Bank was expected, perhaps because of weakness in the property market, then the Reserve Bank will ease up on the break. If things just continue to motor along at a very strong pace, then, of course, they might have to do more. But our base case is that 2.5% should probably be enough and that'll be reached sometime next year. Now, in terms of wages, I mean, they're saying that their research uh, shows that wages will are likely to rise, start rising, particularly with a tighter labour market. But at the same time, they're saying there's still considerable inertia in the wages system from multi-year enterprise agreements. That's right. It does take a while for these new agreements to come into place because many enterprise agreements are for multiple years, sometimes three years, and so it takes a while for them to roll off and then a new deal to to take its place. But it's, it's interesting. I mean, a month ago, the Reserve Bank was saying that they would wait for the March quarter wages data, which is due on the 18th of May. And of course, we haven't got to that point yet, and they've already raised interest rates. I think what changed in the Reserve Bank's mind was really the high inflation number. But they seem to have addressed that up to some degree by saying that they've also got information from companies that more companies are now starting to put through stronger wage increases. So looks as if the Reserve Bank is sort of de-emphasising the inertia Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Aspect in the wage setting system in Australia and focusing on anecdotes and commentary they're getting from businesses that wages are going up, which I think was the right thing to do. I, mu- I must admit myself that I thought there were lots of signs that wages growth was picking up. If you look at the survey undertaken by the National Australia Bank, they, that survey showed quite a clear pickup in labour costs and even the ABS's fortnightly payroll survey would suggest the same. So 
I, I think you know the Reserve Bank has just accepted reality here, and, and we've got a four percent unemployment rate, a very tight labour market, and and workers face a much stronger bargaining position. Doesn't mean, of course, that wages growth will suddenly be above the rate of inflation, and maybe. When inflation is five or six percent, you don't want wages growth to be above that because we'll end up with a wage price spiral. But ultimately, we do need stronger wages growth to be confident that we won't go back to the very low inflation that we had prior to the pandemic. But obviously, a difficult balancing act with all of that. But it seems as if the Reserve Bank's assessment on wages growth has has changed, and they're now seeing stronger wages growth ahead. Wages actually fits into the uh, number of uncertainties put into the RBA statement. Now, they say they have no contemporary experience to guide them on how labour costs and prices in Australia will behave in response to an unemployment rate below 4%. Well, that's right, we don't, because the unemployment rate hasn't been below 4% since 1974, currently 3.95% to be precise, which is the lowest since 1974. You know, there's always an uncertainty as to what point the tone of the jobs market will suddenly change. You know, we've seen the unemployment rate come down over the last the last decade or so, and uh, we didn't see much of a pickup in wages growth. In fact, it's continued to slow down as workers face more and more competition and businesses were, were quite competitive. But the history of what economists call the Phillips curve, uh, which is the relationship between the unemployment rate and the wages growth, is that it has a kink somewhere. And that is you get lower and lower unemployment. There's no pickup in wages growth until you get to some point, which you don't quite know where it is. And suddenly wages growth picked up. This is what happened in the 1960s that unemployment came down, no pickup in wages, and then I, th- I think it finally got to around 3%, then suddenly we get a pickup in wages growth. So that's, that's I guess, what the RBA is alluding to. They don't have an experience as to, because we haven't had unemployment below 4% in nearly the last 50 years, they don't know precisely at what point wages growth will pick up. Maybe the unemployment rate still has to fall to 3%. But recent anecdotal evidence and their own business liaison and various business surveys suggest that it's already starting to pick up. So that that is a big uncertainty facing the RBA, along with all the other other uncertainties. The impact of the war in Ukraine is another big one and the impact of household debt. So it is a difficult balancing act for the RBA. If they move too quickly in raising interest rates, go too far too fast, then they may snuff out, pick up in wages growth, which is necessary to sustain higher inflation in the 2 to 3% target. But by the, and, and likewise, if they go too quickly, they may cause problems in the housing sector, given uh, high household debt levels. But yeah, the problem is that to some degree, we are in uncharted territory because we haven't seen unemployment this low in, uh, since 1974. Well, the other uncertainty besides the war in Ukraine is how the supply, pro- how the supply side problems are going to be resolved. That's precisely right as well, because if you go back a year ago, it was a year ago now, we started to see the higher inflation numbers come out of the US. Uh, The Fed and many economists, including the RBA, thought it was temporary or transitory, uh, that uh, pretty soon things would return to normal as the world reopened following the pandemic. And then, of course, the disruptions continued. The Delta lockdowns, that led to problems. And then we've had more and more supply constraints. So, yes, there's an inclination to think that these supply constraints may still correct themselves at some point. But by the same token, this has been going on for much longer than many expected. And that's why I think the Reserve Bank has to start acting. The experience of the 60s and 70s, again, is that when you get some artificial boost to inflation from a supply issue, for example, OPEC uh, cutting off oil going to the US, as they did in 1973, unless you respond aggressively 
then that pickup in inflation from that supply response can get built into inflation expectations. And so a, a supply push to inflation then turns into a, you know, a permanent uh, pickup in the rate of inflation. And that's something the res- central banks, including the Reserve Bank, now have to deal with and explains why they're raising interest rates, even though they can't do much about supply problems. So, it's a, it's a, again, it's a difficult uh, balancing act. And it's something that the Reserve Bank hasn't had to face for many years, that the supply side has generally been pretty much under control apart from a few surges in the oil price associated with OPEC wars that proved to be temporary. Generally, the supply side of the economy has been pretty much under control. And now, now of course, the world has changed. You know, we've seen a reversal in globalisation. A lot of countries wanting to bring, bring production back onshore, including Australia, and that's turned the last 20 or 30 years on their head and led to more uncertainties about the supply side. So, again, it is another big source of uncertainty for the Reserve Bank. So it means the Reserve Bank has all these uncertainties and it's a long way ahead over the next 12 months or so? It it certainly will be. It's going to be an interesting and and somewhat difficult period. Obviously, homeowners with a mortgage, particularly a recent mortgage, will bear the brunt of this, unfortunately. But I guess by the same token, you know, it always seemed to me unlikely that interest rates were going to stay down at these record low levels indefinitely. And of course, those with bank deposits and a reliance on bank deposits for income will be feeling, uh, starting to feel a little bit bit happier as those uh, bank deposit rates start to rise along with higher interest rates. So it's uh, it's a messy period, but I I don't necessarily think it's going to be disastrous. The history of interest rate hikes in Australia, and we do have lots of history on this front, is that they don't necessarily cause recession. In fact, the last four cycles of interest rate hikes in the 90s and 2000s were not associated with recession. The last time we had a recession brought on by higher interest rates was way back in uh, the early 90s. But all the rate hikes since then ended up in soft landings, not, not a recession. So that history tells us that, you know, we're not necessarily destined to see a crunch in the economy and nor does the Reserve Bank want to bring that on. Well, Shane, thank you very much for your time. It's very informative. Thank you. Thanks, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, stocks globally are tumbling as renewed worries about China's economy pile on top of markets already battered by rising interest rates, inflation and the Ukraine war. Wall Street has tumbled to its lowest point in more than a year. The Australian share market is set for more heavy losses with Australian shares hitting a three-month low. In Asian stock markets, Japan's Nikkei 225 and South Korea's Kospi are down, as are European markets with France's CAC, Germany's DAX and London's FTSE sliding. And a survey has found Australians were struggling even before the Reserve Bank of Australia rate rise. A survey by financial comparison website Finder revealed almost one in three Australian homeowners were feeling the pinch even before the RBA raised the cash rate to 0.35% from 0.1% last week, the first increase since 2010. The outlook does not get any easier, with the RBA indicating it will do whatever it takes to curb inflation. It is forecasting inflation to reach 6% by the end of this year, almost double what it expected just a few months ago. And the Australian Council of Trade Unions, or the ACTU, is now calling for minimum wage increases to be lifted to 5.5%, rather than the original 5% they were originally pushing for to deal with inflation. ACTU Secretary Sally McManus said this was the only way workers could keep their heads above water, with growing cost of living. Inflation is now 5.1%. Unions wanting 55 is reasonable in that circumstance, McManus said. McManus said if workers can't get 5.5%, they may be forced to resort to taking stronger action. And Labor leader Anthony Albanese has sparked a political storm by backing an increase in the minimum wage of at least 5.1%, despite businesses claiming the higher costs would destroy jobs, widening an election row over economic planning. 
Business groups rejected his call to lift the minimum wage to keep up with inflation, arguing it would drive small employers to the wall because they could not afford higher pay rates. The Fair Work Commission is taking submissions on the minimum wage ahead of a decision expected in June, and its outcome will determine rates affecting about 2 million Australians who have paid the current minimum of $20.33 per hour, or whose incomes are linked by a higher industry award. And power bills are going up no matter who wins the election. Retail electricity prices are expected to jump by up to 10% on July the 1st, following a surge in wholesale prices in the past year. This despite claims from the Coalition and Labor that prices are going to stay low or fall after the May 21 election. Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Labor leader Anthony Albanese are targeting cost of living pressures during the election campaign. But energy experts said the idea power prices were going to fall after the election was disingenuous. Grattan Institute's Energy Program Director Tony Wood said it was inevitable the sharp rise in wholesale power prices in the past year would flow through to retail prices from the middle of the year, regardless of who won office. Wholesale power prices have increased significantly over the past year. That is due to a range of factors including the war in Ukraine, global energy woes and unplanned maintenance of coal-fired power stations in Australia. The Australian energy market operator said the average wholesale power price in the March quarter rose 141% from a year earlier to $87 a megawatt hour. Prices rocketed higher again last month amid stretched coal and gas markets and disruptions of coal power generators. The Australian Energy Regulator has delayed its final determination of the default market offer until May the 26th, the week after the federal election. And Coles and Woolworths suppliers are hitting up the major retailers for multiple price rises, which could see the cost of products on shelves increase by a whopping 12% this year, new research has revealed. Shoppers in the US and UK are already being battered by huge price increases, and Aussies are about to experience the same as the cost of living skyrocketed to a 22-year high. Ben Gilbert, retail analyst at investment bank Jarden, warned price rises at supermarkets are coming now and are large. A survey of 45 suppliers from Jarden found they were seeking a price rise of up to 6.8% each year on average on their products, with 66% already pushing the increase through, while 20% were still in negotiations. Gilbert said further increases are planned, either a second or a first at a planned weighted rate of 7.4%. This paints a scenario whereby we would see an annualised run rate of more than 12% through 2022. And Westpac Chief Executive Peter King says multiple official interest rate rises will contribute to a fall in GDP growth of 2 percentage points next year as consumers rein in spending to ensure they can afford higher interest payments to banks. Guided by its chief economist Bill Evans, Westpac accepts the economy to expand by 4.5% this year but then slow to 2.5% next year as the rate rises start to bite. This is similar to the RBA, which on Friday said GDP would grow by 4.25% this year and fall to 2% next year. And Australia's big four banks, ANZ, CBA, NAB and Westpac, now hold a whopping $1.87 trillion in home loans. Throughout 2021, as Australian house prices skyrocketed, Australians kept taking on bigger mortgages, many worth more than six times their income, pushing up the profits of the big four banks. EY analysis of Big Four Bank 2022 half-year results has found that they had a combined cash profit after tax of $14.4 billion. That's up $700 million from the 2021 half-year results, or an increase of 5.1%. The Big Four's $1.87 trillion share of home loans makes up the bulk of the nation's total housing loans, which is worth almost $2 trillion all up. EY found that of a $2.9 trillion loan book held by the Big Four, including home loans, personal loans and business loans, about $1.87 trillion is made up of home loans. In the year to March 2022, EY says that home loans written by the Big Four grew 2.4% or by $43.9 billion. And the NAB's latest business survey revealed employers' labour costs lifted to 3%, while purchase cost growth reached 4.6%. 
Quarterly price inflation increased from the previous March levels, with companies reporting their final prices climb 1.7% over the three months to April, while retail prices were up 2.1%. And DoorDash and the Transport Workers Union have signed a landmark agreement to ensure fairness for gig workers, including commitment to regulating the industry. The charter is the first of its kind between an Australian union and a delivery platform. The union said it recognised the flexible nature of gig workers while agreeing to the need for enforceable industry-wide standards set by an independent body. Its six core principles developed over several months include transparency, a collective voice for workers, dispute revolution, training resources, allowing workers to access appropriate rights and entitlements, and a three-stage approach towards achieving regulation of the on-demand transport industry. And tech billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks says AGL Energy's almost total disregard of a need to decarbonise in documentation for its demerger will, will persuade many institutional shareholders to vote against a split. Cannon-Brooks said AGL Energy's investors would reject its plan for a demerger, given widespread climate concerns among its share register and its failure to execute a strong business case for the split. The billionaire was due to hold talks with AGL chairman Peter Botton on Monday evening, the first talks between the pair since he took his 11.3% stake to become the company's largest investor. Mr Cannonbrook said he read the 182,000 words contained within the AGL scheme booklet and said he was incredulous at the company's failure to consider a plan B if the split was rejected and its failure to meet Paris climate targets. AGL was hit with a huge backlash on climate change at its 2021 annual general meeting after more than half of investors demanded stupid carbon cuts in a result hailed by Mr Cannonbrooks at the time as a defining moment for Australia's climate ambitions. Both Mr Cannonbrook's Grok Ventures Camp and AGL's board and executives are holding meetings with major investors this week at the beginning of the five-week race to win support. Grok said it wanted to inform shareholders of the risk of the restructure. Superannuation giant Hester, which owns 0.36% of AGL, said last week it might vote against the merger at the June 15 meeting unless it would achieve emissions reduction in line with the Paris Agreement and an equitable transition for effective workers. Last year, more than 52.5% of proxy votes supported an activist group resolution calling for the company to set prior Paris-aligned targets, and Mr Cannonbrook said he expected support for his anti-demerger position to grow among that cohort. The demerger needs 75% approval to go ahead. And Woodside Petroleum's latest attempt to be more transparent about adapting to climate change faces a high-profile backlash at the oil and gas giant's upcoming annual general meeting. Key proxy advisor, CGI Glass, Luce, which provides advice to large investors, has recommended shareholders reject the company's inaugural climate change report, saying it lacks detail and might overly rely on carbon offsets. Last year, following investor activism, Perth-based Woodside agreed to put its climate reporting to a non-binding advisory vote at this year's AGM. But Glass Lewis recommended investors vote against the report at Woodside's AGM on May the 19th, when shareholders will also vote on the $63 billion deal to merge with BHP's petroleum business. Glass Lewis said the plan lacks substance and specificity. While issues were complex, the firm said Woodside may be lagging its industry peers about the details provided, as well as the consideration of Scope 3 emissions at its target setting process. Scope 3 emissions are indirect emissions, such as those coming from suppliers or customers. And Woolworths has turned on paying with QR codes, a move that will alert link rewards and gift cards to payments to improve the checkout experience for customers, and may eventually pressure card giants MasterCard and Visa. Using the COVID-19 check-in method to pay for groceries could also allow Woolworths to reduce payment costs by encouraging customers to pay by linking their bank accounts to its app. Millions of customers shopping at Woolworths and Big W stores will be shown a unique QR code at checkouts from Wednesday, which can be scanned with a smartphone, linking them to Woolworths Everyday Rewards app. Customers will be able to link payment cards directly to the app. 
The technology developed with Epos, now part of Australian Payments Plus, will allow Woolworths to combine its rewards program and other services with a payment linking data and making its app more useful. Woolworths may push QR code payments to other retailers via its payment arm, WPay, which is advising other companies on payment innovation. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Dr Angus Tran, a medical doctor and world-ranked AI engineer and data scientist who is a co-founder and CEO of Harrison.ai, a clinician-led healthcare artificial intelligence company tackling some of the biggest issues in healthcare causing inequitable diagnosis and treatment today. They have rapidly developed breakthrough AI software in in vitro fertilisation, chest x-rays, brain CTs and soon skin conditions, all with the aim of helping clinicians make the right diagnosis faster and treat patients sooner. And I'll be talking to KPMG economist Sarah Hunter about interest rate rises and inflation. In the meantime, you'll catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.